Isaiah this evening, chapter 2, Israel's Future Hope. Not a very exciting title, but a very exciting chapter. A lot of them are going to really be exciting, at least to me, and hopefully I, <clears throat> to you too. Chapters 1 through 6 are mingled rebukes and promises. And promises are a big part. As God is saying, this is not the whole story. I'm judging this group of apostates and idolaters. That's not the whole story. And that is a, a, a critical feature. And he alternates, Isaiah does, between in this chapter, between the glory of Jerusalem and the coming judgments. As for those judgments, you know, I, I, I would think that when a believer goes to a church where the word of God is preached, one of the thoughts, recurring thoughts, is, oh boy, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this. I wish I could play this back for someone at work or school or wherever. Then pray that. If you're looking for some direction in prayer, if you're saying, you know, my prayer life, I really, you know, don't really know what to add to it, and I'm looking for something, well, add that. That the things that are moving to you from God's word through God's system of the church would stir others, bring them to church so that they can hear it. This first verse now we go to of Isaiah chapter 2. The word that Isaiah the son of Amoz saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Well, in verse 1, he spoke of seeing a vision. Here, he speaks of the word that he saw. And, of course, it's what God revealed to him. And there, there's Isaiah somewhere in his <clears throat> office with the oil lamp in the evening and the windows open in the day. It's just a recording for humanity, the Word of God. In verse 2, Now it should come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of Yahweh's house should be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. Interesting. The temple's still around when he's writing this. He's speaking of another temple and another time. And uh, in ver here, verse 2 through 5, almost word for word is repeated in Micah chapter 4. And I, I like these little lessons that come out of the scripture. Micah quotes Isaiah. Because Isaiah, he's the older. Micah was a contemporary, but he was a younger prophet than Isaiah. Isaiah says this is what he saw. He saw the word. Micah doesn't say that. He just publishes what Isaiah has in his prophecy. And what I like about that is here you have one prophet in Isaiah being admired by another prophet. Well, that's not always the case. Well, that is the case here. It was that important to Micah what Isaiah is saying through verses 2 through 5 that it, he put it in his book also in, verses, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. These promises of a glorious future for Zion under the Messiah. Uh, the prophets like us, they were hungry and thirsty for God to come too. They wanted God's kingdom set up just as much as we do. I think the prophets enjoyed writing about the future. They had to address the sordid presence 
of the present age, the behavior of the apostates, which oftentimes was the majority. They certainly often held the majority of power. And the prophet says, the nations will recognize Jerusalem as the capital of the world. Go, go grab some person down in the street that's not a believer and say, do you know Jerusalem's going to be the center? You, you know, everyone's, not everyone, but a lot of these people out there are pushing for globalization, one world government. Well, it's going to be a one world government. It's going to be a global government under Christ, the king, and not until then. Even Antichrist, who set it up a little bit, it would be fuzzy, and then he's going to meet with rebellion because he's going to be a creep, that's why. And so are the other people that he's ruling over. They're going to be creeps too. The ten horns, all of them rotten. And anyway, yet to be fulfilled, these things, uh, some of these things as, as we know. In the latter days, the latter days to the Jews was an exciting topic. Just like the rapture in the latter days is for us also. Uh, that Messiah, the Messianic kingdom, the Jew couldn't wait for that. And because uh, you know, when you go through the Gospels, they're asking, are you going to set up your kingdom now, Lord? You know, they wanted it. We, we want the rapture. I don't want the rapture so much. Um, it's, a, it's a mixed thing, and I'll, I'll tell you from the Scriptures that I'm not the only one. Well, James said, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And so he's saying, when God returns, when Christ returns, just establish your hearts with that thought of his coming. So it's an exciting facet of our faith. The second coming of Christ. First for his church, then seven years later with his church. But Paul, Paul addresses this mingled blessing. I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ far better, he says. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. I have a desire to stay and reach as many people with the gospel as I can and within the sphere of ministry that I have. And then the other part is the rapture, to, to be with Christ. And so I, I'm not alone in that sentiment. The great apostle Paul wanted to be with Christ more than anything. But he also could see that he had a ministry from Christ right here, right now. And I think we should balance that out. And on a bad day, say, oh, Lord, Maranatha. That's, that's really not. That's less than right, as I should say it that way. I'm not trying to sound self-righteous, but we're not looking for the rapture as an escape portal. Uh, it, when the rapture comes, you know what it's going to signal? Hell on earth. The great tribulation. So it'll be, woohoo, I'm out of here. Yes, but what about those left behind? Well, they should have repented. Well, a lot of them never heard the gospel. And it's going to be a rough ride for everybody. Well, anyway, it's a little perspective on the Jews listening to the prophet write about the coming Messiah, and we able to identify with that. Jerusalem, where the temple was, as I mentioned. And where the millennial temple will be. And so elaborate is this temple. Ezekiel in chapters 40 through 4 chapters, 40 through 43, he talks about the temple. Incidentally, there's one little section, a little verse. He talks about the priest. They're supposed to trim their beards. Just saying. That's what the Bible says. You don't trim your beard, you know that God is siding against you. Okay, it's a little humor mixed in. 
It does talk about that. I just thought it was kind of cute. You know? Anyhow, coming back to this, uh, the Lord's house in Zion, Jerusalem, uh, Zion, very high on the mountain, it says. And this is a recurring theme attached to the house of the Lord, the mount of God. It's in the Psalms, it's in the prophets, and uh, Isaiah, of course, one of the prophets that speaks of it. And the ancient Israelites, they viewed Zion as a superior place of worship. You know, when you get to your New Testament still, they're talking about going up to Jerusalem, regardless of which direction they're coming from. You can come coming from the north, you, you know, it's not, we're going down to Jerusalem. No, we're going up to Jerusalem. And not only because it was elevated, uh, there were taller places. You could, you could come from Mount Hermon, the tallest mountain in the region, and you still would be going up to Jerusalem. Uh, because that's where it was in their hearts, and we should see it that way too. Now, there are going to be geographical alterations by God there in Jerusalem, on the earth, period. The desert will bloom again, that's one. But concerning Jerusalem, Zechariah tells us, in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Can you imagine it? Which faces Jerusalem on the east. You can go to the Mount of Olives today, and you look across the Kidron Valley, and there's Jerusalem. Marred by that dome, which is in the wrong place. And there's darkness about that thing. You're not even allowed to pray up there. Man, what kind of crazy thing is that? <laughs> They're so insensitive, so insecure. Anyway, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall be moved toward the north and half of it toward the south. So the elevation of Jerusalem, which is exalted now, will be increased further. Now this throne of Messiah, I love this verse out of Corinthians. Then comes the end. I like Paul just, then comes the end. Everyone who is, well, oh, I'm on the wrong verse. I'm reading from Zechariah. We get to that one. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. You can't even tell in writing how much wickedness world rulers have been guilty of. Even presidents of the United States, some of them, many of them. Most despicable actions covered up, of course. So that you, you won't know. So you get this image of them. Boy, I like that president. Yeah, if you knew half the story. I mean, it usually comes out 50 years after their death. Somebody begins to research it and publish it. But anyhow, that's going to be gone. Micah chapter 4. So Yahweh will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on, even forever. I like how he just punches that through. Yahweh will rule from Mount Zion from now on, forever. It's final, it's authoritative in a, in a blessed way. And of course, Isaiah 9, the kingdom of, will be upon his shoulders. Uh, just, just, just the Bible's loaded with this. And he says here in verse 2, And shall be exalted above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. Well, the metaphor of nations flowing to, it, will be, it won't be a tour stop, though there'll be things that you want to see. It will be worship, and it will be global. And there'll be no anti-nation against Christ, not until a thousand years have, have passed, and then there'll, there'll be this flash of a moment. It won't last. Zechariah 14 again, uh, Zechariah again, uh, 14 verse 6, I previously read 14 4. 
And it shall come to pass, everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go down from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, or Yahweh of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And these symbolic feasts will be to educate the people about the cross, what took place. Just because they survived the millennial, uh, the great tribulation, doesn't mean they have knowledge of God. We'll come back to that one. Uh, but, but here... Everyone who is left. Look at, you see those little lines between those little spaces of words? Everyone who is left. Because there will be myriads of people dead, gone. These are the survivors. And they will be uh, a remnant compared of, of Gentile and Jews alike. This will be a remnant of humanity that makes it through the great tribulation. Uh, this it will be so catastrophic. Nine one one will be useless. Uh, it won't be the first time. I mean, uh, you know, the Blitz of London. And we just get overwhelmed with bombs. Well, the Great Tribulation is going to just eclipse all of those things very easily. So again, imagine the Jewish Temple would become the center of worldwide worship to the Lord and genuine, genuine worship uh, for for a long time. What's happening here, as Isaiah writes, in this paragraph, this chapter, probably belongs to a portion of Hezekiah's reign or, or Ahaz. Probably Ahaz, a wicked king. Uh, Uzziah and Ahaz, they built up Jerusalem substantially. It allowed it to have this economic success that factors into the apostasy. But the Jews were adopting the nothing gods of the Gentiles. That's the rebuke that's in this chapter, in chapter 1, and throughout Isaiah. They were adapting the gods of the Gentiles, but the day is coming when the Gentiles will abandon their idols and adopt the God of the Jews. There will be a switch around. And so the prophet is saying, you don't know what you've got. You people are ruining yourselves with these fictitious Gentile gods that you're fawning all over. Put them all in your house. Oh, look at my idol. Expensive ones. And when it's all said and done, don't you know your little nothing gods will be still nothing? And the only true God will be standing? And the Gentiles will come and worship in front of your eyes as a people. As a people. Because as individuals, you know, they die and they go and they won't experience this. And many of them will be in hell. Um, and the apostates will. And so the, the prophet within this is saying, do you know what you have right now? In his day, he's writing to his people, don't you know you've got the real God? Can't you see it? In the New Testament, Paul appealed to the church. You know, I get a lot of mail with how to grow your church, pastor, or how to give a leadership meeting, pastor. What do I need them? I, I get so, I don't get reanimated, but internally it's like, man, you, is this what you think of the church? You think pastors are too stupid to know what from the Bible how to lead, how to pastor? That they need some agency to come along and tell us? We're too moronic to go to the Bible to learn anything. We need to give you money so you can teach us. Send your people to learn how to lead. Why? You just mess them all up. We can do that right here, not mess them up. We can, not that part. So Paul had a similar problem. He says to the Corinthians, Do you not know that we shall judge the angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? Paul is saying, you go into the courts to sue one another? 
Don't you understand? You're Christians. You've got the word of God. You should be dealing with these things without the world. But you're running to the world to sue each other. What a wonderful witness that is. You don't know what you got. That's what Isaiah is saying. That's what Paul is saying. And that's what I would say to all of these little pamphlets I get on, you know, or one of my favorites, you know, <clears throat> pastors that need counseling. I serve the Lord. And he is a wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. And if I need counseling, I probably should quit. That sounds harsh. It sounds self-righteous. And I don't mean to sound that way. But there's another part of it that I don't apologize for one moment. I'm not being high-minded. I just believe that the word of God has the word of life. All of it. And you want to know about behavior, whether you're in the, in the pulpit or the pew, you go to the God's word. And if that bothers a person, well, that's them. But as for me and my house, what does that mean? As for me and my house, when we're in trouble, we'll seek some agency. Uh, we'll study the lessons from the Scripture, but we won't apply them to our lives. We'll seek some agency. I, all right, I've enough about that. Okay, two more things. No, no. Verse 3. And I'm in the major- minority, incidentally. I, I know. Okay, verse 3. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, the house of God of Jacob, He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word from Yahweh, from Jerusalem. This is magnificent. The many people shall come. These are millennial Jews and Gentiles. Now, we'll be the government, the the representatives of Christ in government. Kings and priests. The Jews will be the priests at the temple. And we will be the, the, the... Delegated authority in the various places of the world. We'll be here for these things. Isaiah, he sees God reaching out to the Gentiles. Something that Israel just never could learn to do. And say, come and let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh. The pilgrimages to, global pilgrimages to Jerusalem. So I guess if free enterprise is still available, I'm going to invest in tour, a tour guide uh, you know, getting people to Jerusalem and back. Mm. All right. Anyway. <laughs> well, somebody's got to get them there. Why not make a few bucks, right? Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm just having fun. And uh, Anyway, the physical throne of Christ on earth will be in Jerusalem. Now, there remains three glorious experiences for the believer. There's the life in heaven. Uh, then the second one is the millennial reign of Christ on earth for about a thousand years. And then there is the eternal new heavens and earth after the kingdom age, when God finally has his quota of those who love him even before ever seeing him by faith. Isaiah 65 this is a beautiful verse. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. God is going to be so busy throwing out new things, we won't even think about the past. I can't wait. I've already started forgetting. <laughs> I forget a lot of things. Anyway, to the house of the God of Jacob. God's house is the focus. But on behalf of human beings... That's why 
it, that's where we come in. Otherwise, you know, why have us there? But why die for us? Well, we are important to God. God's word will go forth from Jerusalem to rule the nations. I don't know. Uh, how, many, how many Christians miss out on these things from Isaiah or any of the prophets? How many of them just miss out? He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. Survivors of the great tribulation and those subsequently born to them. There will be marriages and births in the great tribulation period. There will be newcomers. They will not have automatic knowledge of God. They still have to learn. They'll have a head start. There won't be, you know, the devil around. Uh, the flesh will still be there, but not as strong as it was. The world or order of rebellion will be gone. You just only really will have the flesh to deal with. And that will be drastically dimmed down. The strength that it has now won't be present. God's ways, his path, law and word. That's what it says. These are things that are important to God now and will be into the millennial reign. And they should be critical to us. We as Christians should say, no, I want to know God's ways. Teach me your way, O Lord. I want to know what route to take on his behalf. And the law of the Lord, and the, which, is, which comes from the word of God. But there's more to the word of God than print. It is Jesus Christ. He is the word of God. This alone should teach us about our lives now as Christians. When you feel like, you know, I don't see the use of the study of the Bible, you've got to punch through that stuff. You can't let the flesh and the world and the circumstances of life take away from you your zest. And even if you don't have it emotionally, do your duty, and that will make hell really disappointed. To find a Christian who is advancing without, you know, the emotions is, is just... What can hell do to that? Because he stops a lot of people by just dimming down the emotions. Oh, I don't feel like it. Well, I don't feel like it. I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, you won't get three cheers in hell for that. You get them from the angels, though. Anyway, Isaiah, he uses this term Zion more than anybody in the Scripture. It doesn't show up much in the New Testament. It's there a few times. Verse 4, He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Again, God's mountain, the center of international justice or global justice. And uh, I love this verse from Timothy, and I, I think you would too. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the, the true benevolent dictator. He dictates something to us. It is because it is good and it is right. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Well, no more munitions plants. So that'll be it. Everything will be re redirected to good food uh, and farming and things like that. This is an inversion, a switch from Joel. Joel probably wrote before Isaiah. Joel says, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. That's not a verse for the Christians. That is God, through Joel, taunting his opponents. So, no, 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 go ahead. Get ready for war. You want to fight with me? I'm going to judge you. You want to resist this? I'll tell you what you need to do. Beat your plowshares into swords. 
because I'm going to mess you up. That's what that's happening there in Joel. Here, God is going the other way. He is announcing the coming end of wars. And so that's uh, interesting. And so when, when Joel says, let the weak say, I'm, we have a Christian song, let the weak say, I am strong in the Lord. Well, that's true. But if you're using the verse in Joel, you've made a stretch that you might want to just try to forget. Because when God says in Joel, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears, let the weak say, I am strong. Again, he's taunting the enemy and saying, no, no, go get strong and try to resist me. Uh, anyway, I, I, I hope, I, I would think that you've probably heard that preached differently. Well, now you have the rest of the story. And you'll have to rethink it. Some of you are like, I can't wait to get out of here to get to Joel. Check it out. You'll, you'll find out. Anyway, uh, neither shall they learn war anymore. Amen. The Prince of Peace will be without resistance. Verse 5, O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the invitation to, to follow God as opposed to the darkness of idolatry. Well, we have it in the New Testament. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not participate, uh, do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. If you take that verse without being mindful of what the Gnostics were doing, whom John was uh, addressing, you might, you know, be a little intimidated. That's not the purpose of the verse. The verse is not meant to intimidate you as you struggle through this life. The verse is to say, if you side with God and not this mysterious knowledge that's out there, that you really the blood's not all that, and Christ didn't do what the Gnostics were doing, you're in trouble. And so John holds up, he says, listen, stay focused on Christ and not this, these people that are coming along with these false teachings. Still to come, still to come is the greatest global movement to Jesus Christ ever known, and it is the kingdom age. And that's what Isaiah is talking about. And that's why Micah thought it was glorious. And we should too. We should say, man, that kingdom age is going to be it. No wars, no trouble. We won't die. We, we will be in our glorified bodies. As the angels are to us now, to largely to some degree, physically or in the spiritual bodies, uh, so we will be to those who survive the great tribulation period and are born during that time. We will not be subject to sin. We will not be subject to judgment. We will be more Christ-like than we ever could have been in this life. And uh, we will be like the angels uh, to the Lord. But with this, this great thing, we came to Christ sight unseen. And God says, that's a very big deal with me. The angels get to see the Lord. Uh, the, the angels of Lazarus, you know, you know, the Lord said, not Lazarus, of, of the child, you know, the, the, their angels seize the face of God. Well, we don't see the face of God except through faith. And again, that is a big deal to God and it is a big deal against hell. So don't, don't uh, undervalue your faith. It is everything. Verse 6 for you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with eastern ways. They are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they are pleased with the children of foreigners. So now he switches gears. Uh, Micah doesn't have this section. He's got his own rebukes. Isaiah goes back. You have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob. Now, in our language, 
We may be accustomed to thinking when someone forsakes you that they're the guilty party. But that's not the true definition of the word in the English, and that's not what's meant here in the Hebrew. To forsake is to withdraw companionship. And God tells us here in verse, he says, because they are filled with Eastern ways. There's a reason why he withdraws the protection, the support, and the friendship, and he's totally justified in doing this. And uh, uh, they abandoned God, and he abandoned them, like like anyone would abandon a sinking ship. It's pointless to continue with them. In fact, you send the wrong signal, and I'll come back to that. But God could tolerate them no more, and so he has forsaken them, but not, uh, he is not, is not a guilt. He is not guilty. He says, because they have, are filled with eastern ways. There's the because, the justification. Yahweh says, don't blame me for departing. You chased me out. That was the covenant. And of course, the Old Testament, the, the, the law, the first five books loaded with this. But here in verses 6 through 8, uh, he repeats the word filled. You're filled with the wrong things. We're going to come to another repetition here in this chapter where he, he talks about upon, but this one is filled, and uh, they became like the pagans around them. Instead of converting the pagans and being light to them, they were seduced, and they willfully so. No one twisted their arm. They had no excuse. If Isaiah did not become an apostate, well, what was the excuse of Ahaz? Why did he become one? He had privy to the same light and exposure and environment. Whose fault was it? It was Ahaz's fault. That's who. That's why he, that's, he has no one to blame but himself. The God of the patriarchs and the prophets was not enough for the idolaters. It's enough for Isaiah and others, the remnant like him, as with some churches. The Bible truths are not enough. So they go start looking elsewhere. And many times they want to keep some of the Bible, so they want to mingle it in. That's the definition of leaven that we're so constantly warned about. And yet they do it like it's not even written down. Uh, it's not a virtue to be ignorant of the Scripture. It's not a virtue to, not, to keep yourself from being exposed to God's Word. And not only in your own time, in in the assembly. This is exposure to the scriptures. As I've said in the past, even if you don't care for my comments, uh, you are exposed to verses that are quoted. And almost every time I get up here, there's about 30 cross-references. I don't don't necessarily use all 30. Sometimes I use more, sometimes I use less. Uh, Anyway, coming back to this, don't crave more. The Bible has. If, if, you, if there's a writer out there contradicting the scripture, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. He's going against God. Uh, Paul had this problem with the Galatians. Like, who's bewitched you? Were you craving other things? Were you made perfect in the spirit or the flesh? Having begun in the spirit. It's a big deal. Not a little verse. Anyway, the defiant Canaanites... The caravans traveling through the lands, they all brought with them their their plague of idolatry, eventually stealing enough Jewish souls to infest the nation. And uh, they walked away from Moses, the God of Moses, and the law of God. He says they are soothsayers like the Philistines. Yeah, because they got it from the newfound converts to sorcery, enchanted with enchantments. 
and gibberish. The irony is pungent here, strong. Judah looked to soothsayers to know the future. Hey, I sound like I'm from Boston. From the future. You use that R. They wanted to know the future. God already told them the future. If you, if you mess with me, you're doomed. He laid it out. I'll give you the future. Deuteronomy 18, Deuteronomy 27, Leviticus 26, 14, Leviticus 20, verses 6 and 7 are just a snapshot of God saying, here's your future. When they stood on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, they, on Mount Gerizim they pronounced the blessings for obeying the Lord. On Mount Ebal they pronounced the curses for departing from the Lord. He is God. He has every right to lay this out, and he did. You want to know your soothsayers' future? Hell. That's their future. Yay, yay, yay. How many times does this movie have to be played before we know the ending? Well, they're not watching it to the end. They're craving other things. No wonder. You know what God, Isaiah is going to say in verse 9? Lord, don't forgive them. And you know what God's going to respond? Okay. We're going to come to that in a moment. How can you not love Isaiah? Man, this is good. And they are pleased with the children of foreigners. There's 11. Now this has an ambiguous meaning. You can say they are just, they're pleased with their neighbor's way of life or the intermarriages or both. So Isaiah doesn't have to lay it out because he knows his audience will, will figure it out. If, it's, if the intermarriages are going along, they're going to know that's what he's talking about. But nonetheless, it certainly has to do with the children of foreigners and their foreign gods. And so... Here he is saying, the people are losing to a fake God culture, to a godless culture. You know, you can't say a fake God is God, and therefore an idolater has a godless culture, even though they're practicing religion. They have the nothing gods, which is a favorite term of Isaiah. Ezekiel, as I've told you before, he uses a more crass <laughs> description of the idols, uh, essentially calling them dung gods. Uh, Isaiah goes mostly with the, the worthless, worthless ones. So uh, here the Jews were raised to believe. They were raised to believe in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs and all the word of Moses. Just like we see kids today raised in the church. They opted to forsake. It is possible. And the foreigners, they thought their gods were better than Yahweh, and the apostates agreed, as do so many in Christ today. You know, you, you want to practice martial arts, you want to practice yoga and bend and twist and do these things, that's one thing. But when you start getting into that spiritual element, you're in a whole other zone. I'm not endorsing, I'm just saying, if you are looking to uh, strengthen your spirit, Outside of scripture, you're in trouble. You're losing your identity as a believer. And you may lose your soul, as was happening to these Jews. Well, they were never saved. They were Jews. They were raised in the temple. They were circumcised and uh, following the law. I don't think we should insert that. I think we should understand they opted out and God let them go. And as a result, judgment. Verse 7 their land is so full of silver, there's the second full, of silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses 
and there's no end to their chariots. Their land, God says, not my land, because he's disowning them. And here they have this wealth and this might. That's the horses and the chariots, the gold and the silver. Who needed Yahweh? Life is good. Meanwhile, they were oppressing the poor. Let's not leave that out. Who needs Yahweh? All his moral restrictions, you know, thou shall not, thou shall not. We just go to these pagan gods, do whatever we want, and look, we're doing pretty nicely in this life. Yeah, you've got some treasures on earth, but nothing in heaven. So uh, they live their life this way. We see this happening with, look at, for example, the Antichrist, and this is just one category of cybersphere oligarchs, you know, the people that are responsible for all the technology and the internet and all these things that are the world and the people that have all this money from them. Who needs God, they think? Many of them, most of them. Uh, they, of course, you, you look at what uh, Tweeter used to do. That's the name. It should be called Tweeter. Uh, censoring people that dared to tell the truth about anything. Uh, so, you know, wearing a mask isn't all that, ah, I'm censored. And, and just the evil that they, they wield. Anyway, um, Satan was taking good care of these boys. For now, at death, he, is, he runs out of power. Uh, people have to see Jesus Christ is holy and sovereign, and we have to tell them that. If, look, if you're not seeing your own sin in the presence of a holy God, you got problems. And uh, anyway... Uh, God must be sought out for, for who he is. And, of course, they reasoned, we made it this far without Abraham's God. We'll make it the rest of the way. They were wrong. Verse 8, there is a way that seems right to man, but its way leads to death. Their land is also full of idols. Their land again. There's a third full. It's infested with false religion. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. Isaiah's not going to finish with, he's not finished with this in the latter chapters. He'll come back to it and he'll hit, hit it hard again. But it was ridiculous to him. Saved souls understand that. <clears throat> what do you do, making your God? Then he ain't God. If you can make your God, if you can make an image of your God, there's something, uh, something wrong. Sin makes fools of human beings, routinely. And uh, here, Israel's land had everything but God. Isaiah's favorite Hebrew term for idols, again, was the worthless ones, or the not gods, the junk gods. He gave no, none of the prophets ever gave any respect to idolatry. They didn't, well, you know, hey, that's actually a pretty nice little statue. Where'd you get that? You can get that from them. Once idolatry takes root in a society, it is near impossible to get out. God had to send the Jews to he got rid of the northern kingdom, then he had to send them to Babylon for 70 years. And that drove it out of them, but it's back. Tel Aviv now has probably put San Francisco to shame. Verse 9, people bow down and each man humbles himself, therefore do not forgive them. This is still New Testament teaching in some degree. Isaiah petitions God to not excuse these apostates who are damning other souls through this choice of treason. These are treasonous actions against this high treason against the king. And he had no illusions about saving apostates. Well, we got to show them love. 
while they're damning souls. So, I mean, I think some Christians would shake hands with Satan to just say, well, you got to, you know, be nice. No, you don't. Don't touch him. Matthew 26, verse 24, The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. That's pretty serious. It would be be good for that man if he had not been born for betraying God the Son. And those who have heard the truth, that's who we're talking about. Those who have heard the truth and trampled it, they are accountable. You know, Jonah was angry with Nineveh, but Nineveh didn't hear the truth. And when they did hear the truth, it was an intolerant message of doom. You got 40 days and you're done. That's his message. And they repented. He wasn't going through Nineveh with a basket of flowers. Oh, you know, God loves you. He's got a plan for your life. There's a time for that. But it ain't all the time. Especially when you're dealing with monstrosities who are puppets for hell. And we risk contributing to the evil by withholding rebuke, by refusing to ostracize those who are damning souls. I'm not going to sit down with a Jehovah's Witness pastor and have lunch and have a good old time. Well, you know, we're both trying to do the same thing, make people feel, you know, stronger in their sorrow and reach out to the community. For what? My taxes reach out to the community. I want souls. And, you know, the church is the conscience of the community. But if the, if the community says, I don't, I want, my conscience is seared with a hot iron, there's not much more you can do. And we must not send mixed signals, signals towards someone's evil. We've got to lay it out. No, that is evil. And what they were doing, Isaiah says, therefore do not forgive them. Again, we can't send the signal that, well, it really isn't that bad. Well, there's still a hope for you in heaven. Well, there's more, you're leaning more, a lot more towards hell than you. You're about to capsize under this misguided notion of Christian love. Matthew 23, 14. Here's Jesus dealing with the scribes. He says to the scribes, what can I do to make you comfortable? I want to make you come back to church. I don't want to offend you. Of course he didn't do that. The apostles protested at one point. They said to Jesus, Master, you offend them. What did he do? He doubled down. Woe to you lawyers. (laughs) He just kept going. So, Matthew 23. I'm not enjoying this. I'm enjoying the truth. I love the truth. I love standing up to iniquity wherever I can find enough strength to do it. But I don't like the fact that people are against Jesus Christ. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites. That woe is condemnation. It's mean you're doomed. Unless you repent. He says, for you devour widows' houses. Well, he didn't want to make them feel comfortable with that. Poor widows were suffering. Even if no one was attacking them, they were struggling. And here you have these monsters taking advantage of them. He continues. And for a pretense, you make long prayers. You act like you're religious. You know the truth, but you hate it. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. That's what he says, Matthew 23, 14. And this is one snippet. Because he goes off on them. 
John comes along, again, with the Gnostics in mind, who heard the gospel, but decided they were smarter than the gospel, and they were going to improve it. And in their improvement of the gospel, they were going to redact the gospel, edit out what they didn't like, and put in what they did like. That's what the Gnostics were doing. John's in his second letter, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. You come across some a Jehovah's Witness that is actively telling you people, people that Jesus is not God the Son, don't be buddies with him. Now that can be tricky. Because they may work in the same place and we can't be up. Now you get fired, getting you know, you kill your witness because the world doesn't know what they're looking at. I would suggest you make it very clear to that individual. Look, I am going to be polite to you. But I don't want you to take that politeness for one moment as an endorsement of anything you think about the Bible. If you if the color blue to you is blue in the Bible, I disagree with you. <laughs> it's hyperbole. Anyway, uh, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, for he who greets him shares in his evil. I mean, it's New Testament theology. And we see this. We see Christians under the guise of love. It's a misguided love. It's different if the person doesn't know, but there are times a person is evil. And they're trying to chummy up with them. And they're just making them feel, they're just especially if the person is what we would call a sociopath, who knows how to behave, pretends to give you what you want, but in all the time, he's setting you up for a backstab. Con otters, so they function that way. Cross-contamination is contamination, whether it's physical or spiritual. You know that. You cook, you, you, you have a raw piece of chicken in your kitchen, and you're chopping it up, and you can, aren't you going to clean up that, that table? Of course you are, because you understand salmonella lurks there. Numbers 16.26. This is when uh, Datham and those boys attacked Moses' authority, and the ground swallowed them up. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in their sins. There is such a thing as spiritual contamination. And I hope these points... Oh, I could have just covered this and said, Isaiah said, Lord, don't forgive them. Verse 10. And No, wait a minute. This is, this is why we have the scripture. Why Christ expounded on himself in the prophets and the law. Verse 10. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of Yahweh and the glory of his majesty. There's a little Joel-esque here. Joel was saying, hey, beat your plowshares into swords because you're going to have a match with me. Well, he's saying the same thing in his own way. He's going to go in the rocks and hide. Like you can hide from God's judgment. That's the whole point. So... They are not forgiven in an impenitive state. They are accountable. And when the Lord comes to judge, people will seek to escape. This is the lesson behind Revelation 6 at the end of the chapter when they're hiding in the rocks and they want to hide from the Lamb of God, but they're not repenting. And of course, it's, it's not all of it is literal. It's, it's the prophets are telling us how the dirty heart works. It wants to escape judgment from the judge without conforming to the judge's law. That is a soul that is doomed. And 
they're doomed on their terms. They won't repent. It's just one step to God. And when you step to God, you knew you were forgiven. What would have happened if you didn't step towards God? This is very simple. It's not calculus. Verse 11, the lofty looks of a man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. And Yahweh shall be exalted in that day. I didn't pause here. I am not, this is not legalism. Upholding truth in God's law is not legalism. Legalism is saying, well, if you want to be saved, you're going to have to learn how to tap dance. Something like that. Uh, you know, you've got to earn your salvation. Or just being, you know, hey, you can't wear those kind of shoes. So, you know, that's legalism. Uh, but uh, to say, you know, if you sin and you're gleeful about it, have no, knowledge, no care for God, you're doomed. Uh, that's what God says. Verse 11, he talks here about their pride. They exalted themselves. Psalm 101. The one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. I can't stand that, God is saying. And he's talking about people who are proud, arrogant. They look down on everybody. It's on their face. You can see, you can see it. Um, <clears throat> the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Verse 11. God is not mocked. What he is saying here is what Paul does when Paul repeats Isaiah that the, at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. That's comprehensive coverage. That's everything. It doesn't, there's no more space. So what about the flying saucers and the Martians? Earth is so loony that earth has become a flyover for aliens. They won't stop here. They just fly over. That's why nobody that gets out the flying saucer and talks to you. The place is loony. Okay, come just be a little f- f- lampoon satire. Verse twelve. For we got to hurry up here. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and shall be brought low. Now, now we begin. The upon shows up ten times in verses twelve through sixteen, twice in each verse. That is a polysyndeton. It is an emphasis. It is repeated to make its point. It's woven into it. There's a benefit of reading scripture out loud as you pick those things up. You find, hey, I'm saying upon a lot, am I? Well, why? what's going on? And you, you dig a little deeper. So, the day of great wrath and little intolerance, which as we know is the great tribulation. Mankind's pride and arrogance as just like the, is rejected by God, just like Lucifer's was. Proverbs twenty one four, a haughty look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked are sin. And the plowing of the wicked is a deliberate work. They are hard at work to do evil and to spread evil. Uh, so wherever insult to God is routine, everything is on collision course with God. The day of the Lord described, it was spoken of here, is described by Christ in Matthew 24, for example. Other places too by the Lord. Revelation chapter 6 through 19, the day of the Lord. And the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Zephaniah, Zechariah. It is important. Verse 13, here's another upon. Upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan. Of course, this is metaphor. He's drawing from nature to point out 
these people are just, they're, you know, they're exalted, self-exalted. Cedars are beautiful trees, and so are some oaks, but I think cedars, uh, uh, sort of cypress trees, oh man, they're just really beautiful. Anyhow, back to this, sorry. Uh, the people looked at these trees with great admiration and pride, and if they could panel their homes with this kind of wood, they would show it off. Uh, this is metaphor for natural glory and natural power that is available to human beings, but doesn't mean it's right. It's symbolic of the kingdoms and the gibors, the oligarchs, the ones that were calling the shots in society. Uh, at, the, at the time that Isaiah delivered the message, again, there was material prosperity, but spiritual poverty. Uh, and they, their reasoning is like many today. If God didn't like my lifestyle, then why doesn't he say something about it? Well, he is saying something. Well, that's not God. It's you, Christians, in your, in your you know, narrow-mindedness. Well, narrow is the way, and straight is the gate. It leads to eternity. <laughs> so you and your broad mind, wide is the way that goes to hell. And there are many that go in by it, we, sh- we should add. Anyway, uh, that spiritual short-sightedness we hopefully can help people with. Verse 14, upon all the high mountains and upon all the hills that are lifted up. And the mountains and the hills, emblematic, again, of natural power. Their pride that is being dealt with here opened doors on earth, but it slammed doors in heaven. It slammed them shut in their face. And uh, maybe that's something to share with an unbeliever who is very successful. Yeah, you're opening a lot of doors in hell, but, you know, we all have a proverb, don't we? There's no hitch on a U-Haul, on a hearse. <laughs> on a U-Haul. There's no hitch on a hearse. You know, like, well, don't forget to load up his car and all of his goods because he'll be needing that. Where he's, you know, that he's just done. Uh, what you need is the Lord. Verse 15. There's another upon, upon the high tower and another one in this verse, as I mentioned, two per verse and upon two per verse of Scripture. Not two perverse. just want to clear that up. Upon... Every fortified wall. So they were smug with their false security. You know, we've got fortifications. We can't be attacked and stuff. Verse 16, upon all the ships of Tarshish and upon all the beautiful slopes. The ship, the Tarshish, the trading ships of Tarshish were the largest of cargo ships, making the largest treks with the largest benefit. You get rich if you you loaded up a cargo ship and got it to Tarshish, which is believed to have been a city in or place in modern Spain. Uh, and God is saying, yeah, you, you're pretty smug about these things. They're nothing to me. And today, again, you look at the engineering you know, equipment and the ships and just the things that people build, and you say, man, that's pretty impressive. But not to God. And not even to the angels. The angels are like, wow, look, at, did you see what that guy did? Did you see that? You know, the angels will look at the Mona Lisa and go, man, that is really good. They, they see things that just make that look like, man, why, why do you have that on your wall? Anyway, I mean, I kind of like the Mona Lisa. I even like the song. I like you need to know. Verse 17. The loftiness of man shall be bowed down and the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day. Amen, Lord. We'll move, we have to move forward. Um, 
Well, I've got to read Ephesians. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. And actually, it's more to the individual Christians. Some of these promises in the New Testament are more to the Christians. Not that we are to hate our enemies or attack them, but it is certainly it does tighten things up and keeps us from being uh, sloppy. And so that when we when it's time to love an unbeliever, we think it through a little bit. Sometimes, you, you know, you live, some people live with unbelievers. You have no choice. You've got to be loving and kind and polite. But when it comes to a topic on God, you, can, you cannot budge. Uh, and sometimes it's better, you know what, we can't have this conversation. We'll talk about anything you want, but we can't talk about the Scripture unless you're really ready. Um, and that is just, uh, you know, using harmless, wise as serpents as harmless as doves. We are very harmful people if we suppress the truth for the, with uh, evil intent, if we withhold it when the door is wide open to give it. We can do a lot of damage as Christians by misrepresenting the Lord. Uh, King David did, and Nathan, Nathan told him he did. And so we don't have this faith where we, well, I'm saved and I, can, I don't have to think anymore. Uh, that is dangerous stuff, and hell is banking on Christians who just refuse to say, wait a minute, let me attach this to the Scripture and slow it down a little bit. Um, we all make mistakes. Every single one of us, we make it in our faith. I get to make them from the pulpit in front of everybody and have them recorded and broadcasted on the radio. We'll sleep with that at night. Wake up in the middle of the night, oh, no, I meant ten, ten, not five. All right, coming back to this. Uh, verse 18, but the idols he shall utterly abolish. And that's what, what we're talking. God's going to triumph, not the not gods. The not gods are going to fail. Verse 19, and they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth for the terror of Yahweh and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. And Isaiah is saying, this is coming. Look, many people are going to die before this happens, but they're going to be those living when it does happen. And he's talking about the final week of Daniel, the 70th week, the Great Tribulation. Revelation 6, verse 13 and 17, just zero in a little bit more. Uh, again, chapters uh, 6 through 19. Also in Revelation. Verse 20. And in that day a man will cast his idol of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each for himself to worship to the moles and the bats. Well, they didn't see that coming. They thought they had these idols of silver and gold, and now they're burying them because they, they realize they're useless. This is the language here. And I mean, not so literal, but if you're in a cave hiding from God, and you have the idol with you, and you realize, okay, my idol's not doing anything for me. It's fake. The moles here is an unfortunate translation. It's a rodent for sure, and it's a borrowing rodent, according to the Hebrew. The, the translators just said, ah, the moles are a good one. Uh, the bats, of course, they're in the caves where the people are pictured as being. So what Isaiah is doing is he's painting a, a picture for the unbeliever. He said, look, look what's, what's going to happen in the end. You people who love these little idols, they're useless. You'll throw them away. You're going to bury them where the rats are, where the moles are, where the burrowing rodents. You're going to hide them with a bath. You want them out of your sight because they've forsaken you. But, and this is what Isaiah is leaving open, will you repent? 
Will you repent? Well, John comes along again, chapter 6, verse 17, says, no, they won't. So many of them. Some will, of course, because there will be tribulation converts. There will be people coming to Christ. Anyway, this is fantastic language. Uh, this is, much of it is just the intelligence of Isaiah laying it out in a language for his audience to read and be interested in and, and have to think about it. Verse 21, to go to, into the clefts of the rocks and into the crags of the rugged rocks from the terror of Yahweh and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. And so he's saying, this is ridiculous. You can't hide from him. What you're going to do, try it anyway, because you're doing it now. You're hiding from him now. You look at the heavens and you know. You know your idol didn't put that there. And yet, you continue. Let's take a piece of Revelation 6, verse 16, when they're being judged and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And John is saying, can you believe that people confronted with the truth? Who, who did something this crazy, who saw it all and turned on it? Judas Iscariot did it. We don't, have to, we don't have to look far to find the people who do this kind of stuff. You know the truth. You know it's fake. And you won't give it up. What's this stuff about kissing a man's ring because you think he's what? In the name of Jesus. You can't see the folly of that? Man, the other guy just put his lips there. That alone should get you uncouth. Social misbehavior of religious people. Anyway, verse 22. Sever yourselves from such a man whose breath is in his nostrils for, uh, for of what account is he? So he ends this section with saying, get away from those people. This is a man that's, that's living in the created realm only. He's carnal. His breath is in his nostrils. He's not self-existent. Isaiah, Isaiah is saying, and he's, he will continue in Isaiah to, brought to disfellowship the wicked. 52 verse 11 Isaiah, depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from her midst, be clean, you who bear the vessels of Yahweh. Paul picks this up in Corinthians. Go out, go out, and Paul mixes it. It's an interpretive blend, but uh, it's the same lesson. If God rejects the proud idolaters, what should the faithful do with them? Maybe that summarizes everything I've been trying to say. And when he says, don't forgive them, if God is going to judge those who thumb their nose at him, how should we treat that person? Well, we have to have still a readiness to love, but a sobriety that goes with it. How, you know, there are Christians that would let a serial killer back into society. I wouldn't. And you could repent and be crusade. Well, I'll, come to, I'll come to the jail and I'll preach to him. But you ain't getting back out of here with us. Because Satan will trigger again that thing that was in you. And it ain't worth the risk. So you die comfortably here and you'll live in glory forever. Uh, you know, who would want Jeffrey Dahmer to move in? Hey, I served my five years and I've got out on a plea bargain. I'm your new neighbor. Is that your kid? <laughs> See, they're like, no. You know what? I'll be visiting you tonight when you're sleeping. And I'll get, no, okay, that's, that's carnal. I shouldn't have said that. All right, coming back, we, let's finish this up. Oh, house of Israel, Isaiah 2, where he begins. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord 
And then here he says, sever yourselves from such a man. I close with this verse from Proverbs. Go from the presence of a foolish man when you do not perceive in him the lips of knowledge. If you want to stay around those who are ignorant and dangerous, it's going to rub off. Well, let's pray. And I hope, uh, you know, if you said, boy, I, I didn't get a lot of that. Think it through. Let's, let's pray. Our Father, your word, it's just, it's like a hammer sometimes. Other times it's sweet as honey. It's up to the individual. Whether they want to be like a hard rock in front of you or whether they want to taste and see that the Lord is good, it is up to us. We thank you for your patience and mercy and pray you give us the discernment, the spiritual discernment, to know when to preach and when not to preach. Like you gave Paul and Silas, when to go to Bithynia, when to go to Asia, when not to go. Lord, uh, may we be led by you and not lean on our own understandings. May you get us all home safely tonight. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen.